Chapter 9 of Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book 2, by Niccolo Machiavelli. Translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter 9. Of the causes which commonly give rise to wars between states. The occasion which led to war between the Romans and Samnites, who for long had been in league with one another, is of common occurrence in all powerful states, being either brought about by accident, or else purposely contrived by someone who would set war afoot. As between the Romans and the Samnites, the occasion of war was accidental. For in making war upon the Sidicinians and afterwards on the Campanians, the Samnites had no thought of involving themselves with the Romans. But the Campanians being overpowered, and contrary to the expectation of Romans and Samnites alike, resorting to Rome for aid, the Romans, on whose protection they threw themselves, were forced to succour them as dependents and to accept a war which, it seemed to them, they could not with honour decline. For though they might have thought it unreasonable to be called on to defend the Campanians as friends against their own friends, the Samnites, it seemed to them shameful not to defend them as subjects or as a people who had placed themselves under their protection. For they reasoned that to decline their defence close the gate against all others who at any future time might desire to submit themselves to their power. And, accordingly, since glory and empire, and not peace, were the ends which they always had in view, it became impossible for them to refuse this protectorship. A similar circumstance gave rise to the first war with the Carthaginians, namely, the protectorate assumed by the Romans of the citizens of Messina in Sicily, and this likewise came about by chance. But the second war with... Part 5 of Chapter 10 of Book 1 of The Wealth of Nations This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Stephen Escalera the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Part 5 of Chapter 10 of Book 1, of Wages and Profit in the Different Employments of Labor and Stock. Thirdly, the policy of Europe, by obstructing the free circulation of labor and stock, both from employment to employment and from place to place, occasions, in some cases, a very inconvenient inequality in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of their different employments. The statute of apprenticeship obstructs the free circulation of labor from one employment to another, even in the same place. The exclusive privileges of corporations obstructed from one place to another, even in the same employment. It frequently happens that while high wages are given to the workmen in one manufacture, those in another are obliged to content themselves with bare subsistence. The one is in an advancing state, and has therefore a continual demand for new hands. The other is in a declining state, and the superabundance of hands is continually increasing. Those two manufacturers may sometimes be in the same town, and
sometimes in the same neighborhood without being able to lend the least assistance to one another. The statute of apprenticeship may oppose it in the one case, and both that and an exclusive corporation in the other. In many different manufacturers, however, the operations are so much alike that the workmen could easily change trades with one another if those absurd laws did not hinder them. The arts of weaving plain linen and plain silk, for example, are almost entirely the same. That of weaving plain woolen is somewhat different, but the difference is so insignificant that either a linen or a silk weaver might become a tolerable workman in a few days. If any of those three capital manufacturers, therefore, were decaying, the workman might find a resource in one of the other two, which was in a more prosperous condition, and their wages would neither rise too high in the thriving, nor sink too low in the decaying manufacture. The linen manufacture, indeed, is in England by a particular statute open to everybody, but as it is not much cultivated through the greater part of the country, it can afford no general resource to the workmen of other decaying manufacturers, who, wherever the statute of apprenticeship takes place, have no other choice but thither to come upon the parish or to work as common laborers, for which, by their habits, they are much This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty The Art of War by Sun Tzu Translated by Lionel Giles Part 7. Maneuvering Sun Tzu said, In war, the general receives his commands from the sovereign. Having collected an army and concentrated his forces, he must blend and harmonize the different elements thereof before pitching his camp. After that comes tactical maneuvering, than which there is nothing more difficult. The difficulty of tactical maneuvering consists in turning the devious into the direct, and misfortune into gain. Thus, to take a long and circuitous route, after enticing the enemy out of the way, and though starting after him, to contrive to reach the goal before him shows knowledge of the artifice of deviation. Maneuvering with an army is advantageous, with an undisciplined multitude most dangerous. If you set a fully equipped army in march in order to snatch an advantage, the chances are that you will be too late. On the other hand, to detach a flying column for the purpose involves the sacrifice of its baggage and stores. Thus, if you order your men to roll up their buff coats and make forced marches without halting day or night, covering double the usual distance at a stretch, doing a hundred lee in order to rest an advantage, the leaders of all your three divisions will fall into the hands of the enemy. The stronger men will be in front, the jaded ones will fall behind, and on this plan only one-tenth of your army will reach its destination. If you march fifty lee in order to outmaneuver the enemy, you will lose the leader of your first division, and only half your force will reach the goal. If you march thirty lee with the same object, two-thirds of your army will arrive. We may take it then that an army without its baggage train is lost. Without provisions, it is lost. Without bases of supply, it is lost. We cannot enter into alliances until we are acquainted with the designs of our neighbors. We are not fit to lead an army on the march unless we are familiar with the face of the country, its mountains and forests, its pitfalls and precipices, its marshes and swamps. We shall be unable to turn natural advantage to account unless we may... Chapter 7 of Meditations of Marcus Aurelius This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius by Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Translated by George Long Chapter 7 What is badness? It is that which thou hast often seen, and on the occasion of everything which happens, keep this in mind, that it is that which thou hast often seen. Everywhere up and down thou wilt find the same things, with which the old histories are filled, those of the Middle Ages and those of our own day, with which cities and houses are filled now. There is nothing new. All things are both familiar and short-lived. 2. How can our principles become dead, unless the impressions, thoughts, which correspond to them are extinguished? But it is in thy power continuously to fan these thoughts into a flame. I can have that opinion about anything, I ought to have. If I can, why am I disturbed? The things which are external to my mind have no relation at all to my mind. Let this be the state of thy effects, and thou standest erect. To recover thy life is in thy power. Look at things again as thou didst used to look at them, for in this consists the recovery of thy life. 3. The idle business of show plays on the stage, flocks of sheep, herds, exercises with spears, a bone to cast to little dogs, a bit of bread into fish ponds, laborings of ants and burden carrying, runnings about of frightened little mice, puppets pulled by strings, all alike. It is thy duty then in the midst of such things to show good humor and not a proud air. To understand, however, that every man is worth just so much as the things are worth about which he busies himself. 4. In discourse thou must attend to what is said, and in every movement thou must observe what is doing, and in the one thou shouldst see immediately to what end it refers. But in the other, watch carefully what The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius by Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Translated by George Long This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Section 10 Wilt thou then, my soul, never be good and simple and one and naked, more manifest than the body which surrounds thee? Wilt thou never enjoy an affectionate and contented disposition? Wilt thou never be full and without a want of any kind, longing for nothing more nor desiring anything, either animate or inanimate, for the enjoyment of pleasures, nor yet desiring time wherein thou shalt have longer enjoyment or place or pleasant climate or society of men with whom thou mayest live in harmony? But wilt thou be satisfied with thy present condition and pleased with all that is about thee? And wilt thou convince thyself that thou hast everything and that it comes from the gods, that everything is well for thee and will be well whatever shall please them, and whatever they shall give for the conservation of perfect living being, the good and just and beautiful, which generates and holds together all things, and contains and embraces all things which are dissolved for the production of other like things? 
Wilt thou never be such that thou shalt so dwell in community with gods and men as neither to find fault with them at all, nor to be condemned by them? 2. Observe what thy nature requires. So far as thou art governed by nature only, then do it and accept it. If thy nature, so far as thou art a living being, shall not be made worse by it, and next thou must observe what thy nature requires so far as thou art a living being, and all this thou mayest allow thyself, if thy nature, so far as thou art a rational animal, shall not be made worse by it. But the rational animal is consequently also a political animal. Use these rules then, and trouble thyself about nothing else. 3. Everything which happens, either happens in such wise as thou art formed by nature to bear it, or as thou art not formed by nature to bear it. If then it happens to thee in such a way as thou art formed by nature to bear it, do not complain, but bear it as thou art formed by nature to bear it. But if it happens... Chapter 5 of The Science of Being Great by Wallace D. Wattles This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Preparation Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. If you become like God, you can read His thoughts. And if you do not, you will find the inspirational perception of truth impossible. You can never become a great man or woman until you have overcome anxiety, worry, and fear. It is impossible for an anxious man, a worried one, or a fearful one to perceive truth. All things are distorted and thrown out of their proper relations by such mental states, and those who are in them cannot read the thoughts of God. If you are poor, or if you are anxious about business or financial matters, you are recommended to study carefully the first volume of this series, The Science of Getting Rich. That will present to you a solution for your problems of this nature, no matter how large or how complicated they may seem to be. There is not the least cause for worry about financial affairs. Every person who wills to do so may rise above want, have all he needs, and become rich. The same source upon which you propose to draw for mental unfolding and spiritual power is at your service for the supply of all your material wants. Study this truth until it is fixed in your thoughts and until anxiety is banished from your mind. Enter the certain way which leads to material riches. Again, if you are anxious or worried about your health, realize it is possible for you to attain perfect health so that you may have strength sufficient for all that you wish to do and that intelligence that stands ready to give you wealth and mental and spiritual power will rejoice to give you health also. Perfect health is yours for the asking, if you will only obey the simple laws of life and live aright. Conquer ill health and cast out fear. But it is not enough to rise above financial and physical anxiety and worry. You must rise above moral evil-doing as well. Sound your inner consciousness now for the motives that actuate you and make sure they are right. You must cast out lust and cease to be ruled by appetite, and you must begin to govern appetite. You must eat only to satisfy hunger, never for gluttonous pleasure, and in all things you must make the flesh obey the spirit. You must lay aside greed, have no unworthy motive in your desire to become rich. 
Statistical analysis. Statistical analysis. Statistical analysis. Yeah. Statistical analysis. Statistical analysis.
Chapter Four of the Science of Being Great by Wallace D. Wattles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mind of God. There is a cosmic intelligence that is in all things and through all things. This is the one real substance. From it all things proceed. It is intelligent substance or mind stuff. It is God. Where there is no substance, there can be no intelligence. For where there is no substance, there is nothing. Where there is thought, there must be a substance which thinks. Thought cannot be a function, for function is motion, and it is unconceivable that mere motion should think. Thought cannot be vibration, for vibration is motion, and that motion should be intelligent is not thinkable. Motion is nothing but the moving of substance. If there be intelligence shown, it must be in the substance and not in the motion. Thought cannot be the result of motions in the brain. If thought is in the brain, it must be in the brain's substance and not in the motions which brain substance makes. But thought is not in the brain substance, for brain substance, without life, is quite unintelligent and dead. Thought is in the life principle that animates the brain, in the spirit substance, which is the real man. The brain does not think, the man thinks and expresses his thought through the brain. There is a spirit substance that thinks. Just as the spirit substance of man permeates his body and thinks and knows in the body, so the original spirit substance, God, permeates all nature and thinks and knows in nature. Nature is as intelligent as man and knows more than man. Nature knows all things. The all-mind has been in touch with all things from the beginning, and it contains all knowledge. Man's experience covers a few things, and these things man knows. But God's experience covers all the things that have happened since the creation, from the wreck of a planet or the passing of a comet to the fall of a sparrow. All that is and all that has been are present in the intelligence that is wrapped about us and enfolds us and presses upon us from every side. All the encyclopedias man have written are but trivial affairs compared to the vast knowledge held by the mind in which man live, move, and have their being. The truth man perceive by inspiration are thoughts held in this mind. If they As I let the filter knowledge seep in I'm up doing food journal entries overnight through the weekend Realize that the business comes with the crown But forget all of the feelings Just focus on controlling multiple crowds I make connections, avoiding frauds who be flexing I advise you to do the same If only for your protection Pull up, pull up Buying land and revocable trust On a making money mission Taking massive action Tropic tincture reducing all of distractions Spinning an operator system up exquisite fashion Making compound transactions Could care less if a naysayer reaction Chilling, relaxing, scrum, sprint, swag on boot One, two, keyboard fashion Never lacking SSH back in Via Docker containers on my CLI Doing hard pipe through the XR Smoothly designing plated jewelry Through a contact lens Put less on the end Cause the women through the space bar Call the Q1 liners on the 
FC increase my trade line, now I ride Lemurs win ever, I'm just serving drives Then the personal assistant, CPU, pimping, get computers to bring me what I need, how I do it, dog I read 24-7, 360 degrees Science of Being Great by Wallace D. Wattles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some further explanations. We go back here to the matter of the point of view, for, besides being vitally important, it is the one that is likely to give the student the most trouble. We have been trained, partly by mistaken religious teachers, to look upon the world as being like a wrecked ship, storm-driven upon a rocky coast. Utter destruction is inevitable at the end, and the most that can be done is to rescue, perhaps, a few of the crew. This view teaches us to consider the world as essentially bad and growing worse, and to believe that existing discord and inharmoniousness must continue and intensify until the end. It robs us of hope for society, government and humanity, and gives us a decreasing outlook and contracting mind. This is all wrong. The world is not wrecked. It is like a magnificent steamer with the engines in place and the machinery in perfect order. The bunkers are full of coal, and the ship is amply provisioned for the crews. There is no lack of any good thing. Every provision omniscience could devise has been made for the safety, comfort and happiness of the crew. The steamer is out on the high seas, tacking hither and thither, because no one has yet learned the right course to steer. We are learning to steer and in due time will come grandly to the harbor of perfect harmony. The world is good and growing better. Existing discords and inharmoniousness are but the pitching of the ship incidental to our own imperfect steering. They will all be removed in due time. This view gives us an increasing outlook and an expanding mind. It enables us to think largely of society and of ourselves, and to do things in a great way. Furthermore, we see that nothing can be wrong with such a world or with any part of it, including our own affairs. If it is all moving on toward completion, then it is not going wrong. And as our own personal affairs are a part of the whole, they are not going wrong. You and all that you are concerned with are moving on toward completeness. Nothing can check this forward movement but yourself, and you can only check it by assuming a mental attitude that is at cross-purposes with the mind of God. You have nothing to keep right but yourself. If you keep yourself right, nothing can possibly go wrong with you, and you can have nothing to fear. Ne Chapter 20 of The Art of Money Getting This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Preston the art of money getting 
by P.T. Barnum. Chapter 20. Preserve Your Integrity. It is more precious than diamonds or rubies. The old miser said to his sons, Get money. Get it honestly if you can, but get money. This advice was not only atrociously wicked, but it was the very essence of stupidity. It was much as to say, if you find it difficult to obtain money honestly, you can easily get it dishonestly. Get it in that way, poor fool. Not to know that the most difficult thing in life is to make money dishonestly. Not to know that our prisons are full of men who attempted to follow this advice. Not to understand that no man can be dishonest without soon being found out. And that when his lack of principle is discovered, nearly every avenue to success is closed against him forever. The public very properly shun all whose integrity is doubted. No matter how polite and pleasant and accommodating a man may be, none of us dare to deal with him if we suspect false weights and measures. Strict honesty not only lies at the foundation of all success in life, financially, but in every other respect. Uncompromising integrity of character is invaluable. It secures to its possessor a peace and joy which cannot be attained without it, which no amount of money or houses and lands can purchase. A man who is known to be strictly honest may be ever so poor, but he has the purses of all the community at his disposal. For all know that if he promises to return what he borrows, he will never disappoint them. As a mere matter of selfishness, therefore, if a man has no higher motive for being honest, all will find that the maxim of Dr. Franklin can never fail to be true, that honesty is the best policy. To get rich is not always equivalent to being successful. There are many rich, poor men. While there are many others, honest and devout men and women, who have never possessed so much money as some rich persons squander in a week, but who are nevertheless